Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Fun Factory. Written and read by Chris England. Chapter 35. Caught in a Cabaret. Hey, you'll never guess who's here. Freddy threw open the curtains and let Seattle's September sunshine stab my eyes and pierce its way through to my hangover. What? What the hell time is it? Breakfast time. Now come on, I'm dying to tell you. Who do you think I saw last night? I don't know, I sighed, pulling a pillow over my face to block out the day and Freddy's inappropriate early morning exuberance. I'll give you a clue. I went along to a burlesque house with the Hurleys, and this person was there, running the place, actually. Burlesque house? Yes, come on, Arthur, you're not usually this dull. Who do we know who loved the burlesque? The burlesque girls. One burlesque girl in particular. Asher, you mean? Mike Asher? Bingo! I sat up, suddenly awake. Mike Asher is here, in Seattle, and he's running, did you say, a burlesque house? I know, it's amazing, isn't it? You wait till you see the show he's got playing there. Unbelievable. We'll go tonight. They start right after we finish. What's so unbelievable about it? Filthy, is it? You'll see. Righto, I'm off to tell Stan, Freddy said, and bounded over to the door. Fred, close the curtains, there's a good fellow. Of course, yes, sorry, he said, springing across the room to do so. Hey, this is exciting, isn't it? It is, but it would still have been just as exciting if you'd told me all about it in three hours' time. That evening, just after eleven o'clock, Freddy led a little group of Carnot troopers, myself, Stan, Edgar and Wren Hurley, and Charlie Griffiths, over to the burlesque house he'd visited the night before, gambling excitedly in front of us like an overactive puppy in a cowboy hat. Chaplin was having one of his antisocial days, mumbling something about having to meet somebody about something or other in order to get out of the evening's entertainment. We turned a corner, and Freddy bowed like a circus ringmaster and cried, Da-da! There, on the other side of the road, was Mike's place. It hadn't been open long, that much was clear, as it had just had a lick of paint, and the fixtures and fittings looked new. Freddy led us inside, and said, confidently to the hat-check girl, "'Friends of Mike's.' She gave a little signal to the bartender, who nodded at a waitress, who scuttled over to a corner table, and then, quick as a flash, Mike Asher was amongst us, smart as a new pin and twice as prosperous, having seemingly snagged that opportunity he'd been on the lookout for. "'My friends!' he cried, embracing us all one by one. The Hurleys hadn't been on the earlier American tours with him, but it turned out he knew them well from a tour of hilarity some years before, so they got their hugs too. He led us all through to a table and waved over some free drinks. "'Mike,' I said when I caught my breath, "'how has this come about? Last time I saw you on Tags Island you were swearing never to return for fear of being snared by your burlesque girl from Chicago.' "'That's right, yes, the lovely Lucia.' he said. Now, Mrs. Asher, and the principal choreographer at Mike's place. Mike gave a little finger wave to a statuesque girl at a nearby table, and she blew him a kiss back. Lucia. 
There was no mistaking that magnificent embonpoint, barely encased in a strapless black lace number that seemed held up by sheer determination. Turned out I couldn't live without her. Well, that's marvellous. Marvellous news. Congratulations. Thanks, old man. And you? Back with the governor? Not many get a second go there. That, my friend, is a story for another time, I said. A gripping tale of chance, fluke and false identity. But what about this place? Spill all. Oh, well, you see, Lucia was working here, and I was given charge of the comedy, which can be a trial in a place like this, because people come to see a bit of glamour rather than to laugh. But I thought, surely there must be a way to do both. And, well, what with the years working for Carno, you know, I contrived to pull off a bit of a hit. And then the manager suddenly had a heart attack and died. Simply the most tremendous bit of luck, really. Not for him, I said. No, indeed, <laughs> not for him. But Lucia and I were able to step into the breach. And, well, here we all are. Cheers, I said, and a fiesta of glass clinking rippled around our table. On stage, a saucy soubrette with a decent set of pipes was warbling her way through a song that nobody was paying much attention to, being far more absorbed in the lines of her voluptuous figure. So, what about this comedy of yours, then? Oh, you'll see, Manic said with a smirk, whisking a watch from his waistcoat to check how soon. You'll see. The thriving manager of Mike's place left us then to circulate and make sure the evening was proceeding smoothly. "'Good old Mike,' I said to Freddy and Stan. "'He's being very mysterious about his comic turn.' "'Oh, I think you'll enjoy it,' Freddy smirked. "'Shh! Here we go!' The singer ended and left the stage to hoots and whistles of approval, and the lights changed. Where there had been a single following spotlight on the girl, now the whole stage was lit up. Mike Asher himself, now a master of ceremonies, appeared to one side and announced, "'Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to A Night at the Show!' The lush red curtains rose to reveal the set behind. Stan, Charlie Griffiths and I gasped, while Freddy and the Hurley sniggered away, watching our reactions. On stage there was a fake proscenium arch, flanked by two sets of boxes. There was no mistaking it. It was the very spit of the set for mumming birds. "'The cheeky beggar!' Stan murmured. The boxes were populated with fake audience members, as in the classic Carno routine, but they were not quite the same as we would have played them, being intended to parody the patrons of a burlesque house rather than a vaudeville venue, so single men and sailors rather than uncles and naughty boys. The acts, too, were different. Where we would have introduced a dull recitation of the Trail of the Yukon, this show within a show featured a shapely soubrette very similar to the one who had actually just left the stage, and some cooch dancers. In short, what Mike had achieved was a burlesque of a burlesque show, and I had to admit it was a clever idea, even though he had quite brazenly stolen the format. The clinching piece of luck-pushing came, however, a couple of minutes into the routine, when a latecomer arrived in the lower box, stage right. He clattered in, dressed to the nines and drunk as a lord, and promptly toppled out onto the stage amongst the dancers. Mike Asher, as the MC, rushed to intervene and wrestled this drunkard, well, this inebriated swell, back into his box with much achingly familiar comedy business. "'Oh, my goodness,' I whispered to Stan, who was chuckling away more in disbelief than anything. "'Imagine if the governor ever found out about this.' With a start, then, I suddenly recognised the man playing the swell. "'Isn't that Billy Ritchie?' I said. "'Good God, you know, I think it is,' Stan said." Ritchie had played the drunk countless times, of course, in his time as a Carno number one. Last time I saw him, he'd been planning to try his luck in America. How utterly amazing to find he'd pitched up here. I look forward to hearing all about it after the show. 
Something about the shapely soubrette then drew my attention, maybe the particular timbre of her singing voice, or a familiar throw of the hip. Whatever it was, suddenly the burlesque house seemed to retreat into the distance, and she was all I could see or hear. I rose halfway out of my seat, trying to get a clear view of her face beneath a pile of dark curls, a wig. I had been fooled that way before, in Paris, when she was right under my nose at the Folie Berger. It couldn't be. Could it? Tilly? Hey, Fred, I whispered, grabbing my friend by the arm for support. Isn't that... Freddy wasn't looking at the stage. Even by the low light of the single candle on our table, I could see he had gone white. I followed his shocked gaze to the back of the room, as did Stan sitting beside us. There, standing by the exit, watching on, was a familiar stone-faced figure. Our drunk, Charlie Chaplin. Next to him, also very far from amused, was Alf Reeves. Beside him, one of the very last people I would ever have expected to see there, so very far from home, Sidney Chaplin, himself a man who'd played the drunk on many occasions, of course. And beside him, oh, my good lord, a dapper little figure in trademark shiny shoes, the governor, Fred Carno himself, seething. "'Dad?' Freddy breathed, not quite able to believe his eyes. We turned to look back at the stage, where a night at the show was rollicking along, all unaware. Mike Asher and Billy Ritchie were engaged in another piece of stage contretemps as the drunk tried to get past the MC to chat up the tasty cooch dancers, while Tilly gave it a spoonful of the good old show-must-go-on spirit. There was nothing we could do to warn them of the impending storm. All we could do was watch with appalled fascination as this catastrophe broke upon our friends.' Carno had seen enough. I heard the click of his impeccable footwear approaching before I saw him, and then there he was, elbowing his way past waiters, weaving around the tables, driving determinedly towards the stage like a bull at a matador. When he was perhaps a dozen feet away, surging forwards with a face like thunder, a vengeful fury in full flight, Billy Ritchie caught sight of him. Instantly the drunk was quite sober. "'Christ, who's the governor?' he gasped, lapsing into his Scots accent. Mike Asher, who had his back to the audience at that moment, whipped around to see for himself. "'Shite!' he yelped with equal professionalism. I saw Tilly, eyes wide, turning and pushing through the dancers, disappearing backstage as quickly as she could. Carno, meanwhile, leapt up onto the apron and grabbed the two miscreants by the scruff of their collars. "'Ladies and gentlemen, this unauthorised performance of my lawfully copyrighted material is at an end!' the governor bellowed. "'It's a burlesque,' Mike protested. "'What?' Carno roared, turning to him. Billy Ritchie took advantage of the distraction to wriggle free, and he fled the stage in double-quick time. Poor Mike, however, was now well and truly trapped. Carno had his head in a lock and was waving a fist in front of his nose. All I could think was that Tilly was there, backstage somewhere, and I was on my feet, pushing forwards, making for the stage myself.' Carno gave me an approving nod as I clambered up alongside him, no doubt thinking that I was driven by a righteous desire to see Billy Ritchie brought to justice, but then he frowned as if he was trying to place me. I looked wildly around, trying to work out where Tilly had gone. Carno turned his attention back to the hapless MC. "'What did you say, you pitiful worm?' "'I said it's a burlesque,' Mike choked out. "'It's fair game. Copyright doesn't apply.' "'We'll see about that!' Carno shouted. You will all cease and desist. You will hear from my lawyers forthwith. He punctuated these points by planting a hefty punch on Mike's helpless nose, which began to pour claret. Mike's eyes pleaded for me to pull Carno off him, but I had other things on my mind, and I charged into the darkness of the wings. 
I barrelled down the stairs into the belly of the building, kicking open dressing room doors, but Tilly was nowhere to be seen. One door that I'd booted off its hinges was the principal star's dressing room, and I saw the panic-stricken Richie halfway out of the window, dragging his clothes in a bundle behind him, trying to do a bunk. "'Arthur!' he squealed when he saw me. "'You wouldn't be thumping old pal, would you?' "'No, Bill,' I said, distracted. "'How are you? How have you been?' "'Oh, not so bad, you know. Mustn't complain. "'I'm looking for Tilly. Do you know her?' "'Aye,' Billy said. "'Lovely girl. She was away and gone even faster than me, like she'd seen a ghost. "'Sorry.' "'I see,' I said. "'Well, you'd probably better, you know.' "'Aye, I will. Thanks, lad. All the best.' Billy wriggled the top half of his body out of the little window and dropped down out of sight. Then I heard his footsteps fading away as he made good his escape from the governor's wrath. Mike was not so lucky, though, as I found when I ran back up to the stage. He was kneeling groggily, dripping blood from his nose, amid the ruins of his enterprise, as Carno stood centre stage and announced firmly, "'Ladies and gentlemen, this performance is over!' Carno was right, of course. The performance was very much over, considering the leading actor had fled as though his pants were on fire, most of the other participants had also made themselves scarce, and the producer, MC, was swaying helplessly, drifting in and out of consciousness. "'Come on, we're leaving,' Carno said, marching towards the exit through the stunned crowd, with Alf Reeves and the two chaplains in his wake. He didn't so much glance at our table, where his own son was cowering alongside Stan, Charlie Griffiths and the Hurleys, all shocked by the suddenness and violence of what they'd just witnessed. And although they were all entirely innocent bystanders, each of them shrank from the gaze of our old governor. I was a driven man by this time. I grabbed Mike by the shirt front and hauled him up onto a chair. There was a loud murmur of shocked protest from the audience at this, most of whom were already getting to their feet, preparing to leave. "'Hey, fella,' one uniformed sailor said, stepping up to intervene. "'Let him be. He's had enough.' "'It's all right,' I said, holding up a hand. "'I'm his friend. I just want to clean him up.' I grabbed a napkin from the nearest table and then hopped back up to where Mike was slumped and began to wipe away some of the blood from his face, and the sailor boy calmed down and went back to his table. "'Mike,' I said urgently. "'Where's Tilly? How do I find her?' "'Thanks for your help, by the way,' Mike slurred bitterly, testing his teeth for soundness. "'Where is she living, Mike? I just want to see her. Talk to her.' Mike sighed. "'I'll have to ask her first. "'Why? In case she just wants to talk to you.' "'What? Why wouldn't she?' "'I'll leave you a message at the stage door. That's if I remember in the morning. "'I'm going to be drinking this night clean away.' The next morning I was up and about early, having not slept at all. Seeing Tilly again had brought a lot of emotions back to the surface, and I was in turmoil. Mike Asher seemed to think she might not want to see me. Embarrassment, I supposed. I still wanted to see her, though, even if only to put those feelings behind me once and for all. And then there was Carno to worry about. I'd been reckless to show myself the night before, and I knew he had seen me, but I couldn't tell if he'd recognise me. If he realised that I was in his employ, then it would be a simple matter for him to order me back to England to help him out with that blasted divorce of his, which would be awkward, to say the least. I made my way to the theatre around midday to see if Mike had left me a message as he said he would, but there was nothing yet. I presumed he was still asleep, or possibly over at the hospital having his nose realigned. There was, however, a familiar figure waiting patiently by the stage door. It was Mr Jobson, Considine's English butler, and it was me he was waiting for. "'Good day, sir. Mr. Considine would like to invite you to join him for luncheon,' he said. "'Oh?' I said. "'Well, that's very nice of him. Lead on.' 
Jobson and I walked a couple of blocks, and I wondered what Considine could want with me. Perhaps I would have to talk him out of some madcap scheme or other to shoot King Greek in the family jewels, but he was good for a decent steak, I reckoned, maybe even a pudding. So I had my most charming smile on my face as the maitre d' led us through a rather swanky silver-service restaurant to the table where Considine was already getting to his feet to greet me. That smile froze in place, however, when he stepped to one side and I saw who our lunch companions were to be. Mr. Fred Carnot and Mr. Sidney Chaplin. "'Arthur, come in. Good to see you,' said Considine warmly, staring me into the conclave. "'Have a seat. Join us. Mr. Carno and I just wanted a little chat. You know Sidney, I take it?' "'I do,' I said, nodding at Charlie's half-brother, who tried his hardest to offer me a smile, but didn't quite manage to get it to reach his lips. The three of them looked at me. Carno gave a little cough, and it struck me that they didn't quite know how to begin.' Clearly they wanted something from me, or wanted me to do something for them. I decided to get busy ordering the biggest slap-up meal I could find on the menu in case it was to be my last. "'Say, listen, I was real sorry to hear about your friend, old Whimsical. He was quite a fella. "'Thanks,' I said. He was. While we waited for the food to arrive, the governor talked a little about the success of his latest preoccupation, the Pleasure Palace on Tags Island, the Carcino. "'Wait,' I said. "'You really called it that?' "'Yes,' he said with another little cough. "'It's a cross between Carno and Casino, you see?' "'I know, yes.' He clearly didn't recall that I had coined the name on the day he showed us all the sight of his would-be Xanadu. Sidney took up the story, sycophantically supplying details of the gorgeous young actresses who had piloted the boats, of the top comedians who had waited tables, and of the thousands of onlookers lining the banks of the river opposite. It was not until we had eaten, and were sitting back with our hands on our full bellies, that the conversation turned serious. "'Well,' said Carno, dabbing at his mouth with a napkin, "'it is always pleasant to see an old colleague in a far-off town.' "'I'm sure Mike Asher and Billy Ritchie would agree,' I said, perhaps emboldened by a glass too many. Carno flexed his bruised fingers with the hint of a snarl. "'I was surprised to see you here, actually,' he said. "'I suppose you replaced that fellow Smith, did you?' He fixed me with a knowing eye, and I flushed. Anyhow, I was under the impression that you would be able to do me a good turn back home a year or so back, but then you were nowhere to be found. Ah, well, Governor, I said, I, uh, this was a last-minute opportunity, too good to miss. Here it comes now, I thought. I steeled myself to show a bit of backbone, to refuse to return to England to fake a testimony against his wife's character, to face the consequences of that, which would be certain unemployment, exile, vagrancy. "'Well, what's done is done,' he said. "'The fact is, you're in a position to do me a good turn now.' "'I am,' I said, taken aback. "'You are,' he said. "'We want to talk to you about Charlie.' "'Charlie? Charlie Chaplin? "'That's right,' Considine chipped in eagerly. "'What about him?' Sidney leaned forward. "'We understand, that is to say, he wrote me a letter in which he said "'that he'd received a lucrative offer from a motion picture company.' "'Yes, that's right. Keystone Pictures, I believe they're called,' I said. "'Oh, so you know about it. "'You know, then, that he's giving it very serious consideration, "'is in fact minded to accept their proposal.' "'My heart skipped a beat. "'It is a handsome offer, as I understand,' I said. "'Carno coughed.' Another of his trademark coughs. Something was coming now, and Sid held himself in check. "'Arthur,' the governor began, "'I know that you've wanted to be a number one comic, like old Sidney here. That's right, isn't it?' "'Or well, perhaps not exactly like,' I said. "'And if that footballer hadn't broken your leg that night at the Oxford, "'well, I'm sure you would have been a number one before this.' "'Ha!' 
I knew it. I would have been number one of the football match company if only the Chaplin boys hadn't had me nobbled. I looked across at Chaplin Major, who was wriggling uncomfortably in his seat. "'I think I can promise you that you will be a number one, my boy, and soon,' Carnot said, leaning forward. "'But in return, I will need you to do something for me.' I froze, like a rabbit hypnotised by a cobra. This was almost too much to take in all at once. Everything I'd wanted since I first joined Carnot all those years ago, and all I had to do was... Well, what? I realised they were all looking at me. Carnot, Chaplin, and Considine. What? I managed to stutter. I need you to convince Charlie that this film business is all stuff and nonsense, that his future lies with the Fred Carnot Comedy Company. Do you think you can do that for me? I almost laughed. What? What makes you think he'll listen to me, especially with Sid on hand? This is just a fly visit, Carno said. Sid and I have business to attend to in New York. You're Johnny on the spot, as it were, and you are a resourceful chap. I'm sure if you put your mind to it, you'll think of something. I pulled a rather dubious face. Well, Charlie's his own man, you know. But you'll do what you can, eh, Arthur? Considine said eagerly. That's all we can ask, eh, Fred? Carno looked as though he felt he could ask a good deal more of me than that but he solemnly offered his hand for me to shake, and after a moment I took it. This understanding having apparently been reached, suddenly they seemed anxious to be rid of me. Carno took a pocket watch from his waistcoat and raised a meaningful eyebrow at Considine, who got to his feet. "'Thanks for coming by, Arthur,' the big promoter said. "'Always a pleasure.' Well, that was one question answered. There was to be no pudding. Mr Johnson ghosted alongside, and he walked with me outside and the two blocks back to the theatre. "'I'm afraid Mr. Considine is particularly anxious at the moment,' he confided. "'I'm sorry to say that his partner, Mr. Sullivan—Big Tim Sullivan? Quite so. "'Big Tim Sullivan has been committed to a sanatorium suffering from paranoid delusions, "'brought on, I'm afraid to say, by tertiary syphilis.' "'Good heavens! "'Mr. Considine's whole vaudeville enterprise depends heavily upon Mr. Sullivan's investment, "'which is uncertain now, to say the least, "'and so the loss of a big draw like young Mr. Chaplin might just prove the final straw.' "'I see. "'Well, I'll certainly see what I can do, old man. "'Thank you, sir.' "'In point of fact, I couldn't see how Charlie would pay a blind bit of notice to anything I had to say, "'especially where his precious career was concerned. "'But what could I do except show willing? "'When I got to the stage door, there was a message for me from Mike Asher.' It was cryptic, to say the least. It read, Miss Matilda Beckett walks out by the hoo-hoo house every day at midday. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Chapter 36. The Hoo-Hoo House. It took a bit of doing, and I had to ask a lot of people, but I finally found the Hoo-Hoo House the next day with nine minutes to spare. It was a two-storey, prairie-style wooden building on the lushly manicured campus of the University of Washington, built, according to a carved wooden plaque, by the International Concatenation of Hoo-Hoo, if you please, for the Alaska-Yukon-Pacific Exposition of 1909. The entrance was guarded by two matching statues of black cats, their backs arched and their tails in the air, and eyes that lit up at night. I sat and waited by one of these black cats, looking out at the view across Lake Washington. I was very jittery about seeing Tilly again. I couldn't help imagining her walking towards me, up the path there, smiling her lovely smile, greeting me with a kiss on the cheek, then saying, "'Look, Arthur, I want you to meet little Charlie.' before turning her bassinet to reveal a baby with those unmistakable violet eyes and enormous perfect teeth. I shuddered and tried to think of something else. Across the campus, a clock began striking twelve. And then, suddenly, there she was. Tilly. She was every bit as beautiful as I remembered, all the more so for being here in front of me at last. There was something new. She seemed a little more grown up, somehow, but she was wearing it extremely well. She stopped a couple of paces away, a smile on her face, uncertainty in her bright green eyes. I found myself hoping, stupidly, that the baby had inherited them rather than Chaplin's idiosyncratic colour, which was why the first thing out of my mouth, my stupid, clumsy mouth, was this. Did you not bring the baby with you? Her face fell, and she sighed. So, you know about that, she said quietly. Yes, I know about that, I said. Is that why we are meeting here, rather than where you and the child are living, so you could keep it a secret? No, I thought you would be amused, that's all. This house was built by the Hoo-Hoo. They're like an exclusive secret society of lumbermen, if you can imagine such a thing. They reminded me of the Wow-Wows. Maybe the government was right, after all, and America is riddled with secret societies. They chose the black cat as their symbol, and they revere the number nine because of the cat and his nine lives. So this clubhouse was opened on the ninth day of the ninth month in 09, and it was paid for by every member making a donation of $9.99. Isn't that crazy? When she ran out of nervous chatter, I offered her my arm and said, Let's walk, shall we? After a moment she took it, and we headed down a path which led through a bank of Douglas firs to the shore of the lake beyond. "'So Charlie told you then,' she said, once we'd strolled in awkward silence for long enough. "'I really didn't think he would.' "'No, he didn't tell me. We've not spoken about it.' "'Amy, then. I swore her to secrecy. I should have known.' "'Stan told me,' I said, eventually.' Tilly was puzzled. "'Stan? But how did he?' "'The money that Charlie gave you,' I said, borrowed from Stan.' She raised her eyebrows at that. "'Ah.' We walked a little further, and soon we had the path to ourselves. So, I said, after you left without a word and up the spout, apparently. Charming. What did you do? Where did you go? Back to England? No. 
At first I was going to, to see if I could find out what happened to my family. I was sitting on the train by myself for hours after they unhooked the boxcar at Salt Lake City, feeling pretty fed up, I can tell you, with not much to look forward to except turning up on my mother's doorstep, wherever that may be, with a baby on the way and my performing career as good as over. Then a girl sat opposite me, such a pretty girl, and she asked me why I was so miserable. And then, just like that, we realised we knew one another, because she was Lucia. Mike Asher's burlesque girl, you mean? Exactly. She was on her way home from a stint in Denver. She's so sweet, such a kind girl, and so funny, and really stuck on Mike Asher, that silly booby. Anyway, by the time we reached St. Louis, she persuaded me to come to Chicago with her, and I got a job with her in that burlesque show, and there I stayed. All the girls were really kind and welcoming, and when I became too obvious, shall we say, to prance about on stage in tights any more, I worked as a hat-check girl. You should have joined Billy Watson's Beef Trust. You'd have fitted right in there. She smacked my forearm. I wasn't that big. Anyway, then the baby came, and he was so beautiful, Arthur, and... Yes, yes, all right, I said, the vision of a purple-eyed mini-chaplain returning to swim before my eyes, simpering, showing off his perfect teeth. Well, all the girls helped out, and they would make such a fuss of the little man, it was like he had a dozen mothers. Just like his father, I thought sourly, landing on his feet. Then, out of the clear blue sky, old Mike turned up at the burlesque house. He swept Lucia off her feet, and they were married a fortnight later. It was so romantic. Well, well, I smiled. I'm glad it's worked out for them. Yes, Tilly said, and I wondered if she was thinking if only, if only it had worked out as well for the two of us. No chance of that now. So then, how did you fetch up in Seattle? Oh, well, Mike and Lucia had the chance to come here, and they didn't want to leave us on our own, so they pretty much insisted on us tagging along. We did wonder whether we'd made the right decision coming here. We get a lot of sailors in at Mike's place, of course, and they can be quite rough. Almost as rough as old Carno, I said. Did you know he's broken Mike's nose, Tilly said. He must have been so cross. You could say that. I suppose that's the end of this little engagement. Shame. I was enjoying it. It was a brilliant idea, actually, I have to say. Burlesking a burlesque. Do you think so? Tilly said with a sly smirk. Brilliant, but naughty. It was my idea. Carno should have broken my nose. Ha! No wonder you scarpered. I wonder what's going to happen. It's all a bit of a mess, isn't it? I suppose it is, I said. But anyway, what has been happening with you? Are you still doing well with Carno? I thought about the conversation I'd had with the man himself just the day before. It had left me feeling pretty vulnerable, truth to tell. It's complicated, I said, but I'm not out just yet. Good, she said, that's good. I'm sure it will work out well for you, just like it has for Charlie. Not a good idea, mentioning Charlie like that, talking about him doing well. Suddenly I had a vivid mental picture to deal with of Charlie and Tilly together, of him kissing her face, stroking her hair, sliding a perfectly manicured hand up a smooth-stocking thigh. We strolled on a little further, until the trees gave way to an open, grassy area. Finally, I couldn't help myself, and blurted out, "'I still can't believe Charlie did what he did to you. "'He gave me the wherewithal to get home. "'He gave you the bum's rush, that's what he gave you, my dear. "'What sort of scoundrel gets a girl in the family way "'and then pays her to go away, eh?' "'Let's not,' she said. "'It's so nice to see you again, and, and looking so well. "'I've missed everyone. Missed you, Arthur.' "'He should have stood by you. "'Well, that's what I would have done. "'Yes.' And you, how could you leave without a word? What could I have said? Goodbye for a start. I mean, I know I made it difficult for you to to return my feelings for you, and, and I know you had a certain 
rapport with Chaplin. I mean, obviously you did, for reasons that escape me, but I did care for you, Tilly, and I thought you cared something for me too. She was quiet. I was suddenly angry, with Tilly, with the situation, and, as usual, with the man who had caused it. I flipped out my pocket watch, glanced at the time. Well, I'm going to have to go, I said stiffly. Matinee to do, you remember the drill. Tilly looked up at me shyly. You didn't ask whether the baby is a boy or a girl. You said he was a little man, didn't you? Anyway, I don't want to know about it. Don't you want to know his name? No. I turned on my heel and started to walk back up the path the way we'd come. Arthur. I said no. I covered my ears with my hands as I walked away. After twenty punishing paces or so, I turned, and she was standing there in the middle of the path, a wistful expression on her lovely face. She called out, I will be here, at the hoo-hoo house, every day at midday. Then I turned and strode away from her. I didn't bother returning to the hoo-hoo house to see Tilly again. What would have been the point? I'd seen her one last time. Now I had to put her behind me and move forward with my life without her. On the Sunday morning, around eleven, we all trooped onto the boxcar once again to ride down to Portland. I was in no mood for conversation, but Amy came and sat next to me, a knowing smile on her face. "'Hello, Amy,' I sighed. "'Something I can do for you?' "'So?' she said, drawing that one little word out impossibly long. "'So? So what?' "'So how was your time in Seattle? Interesting?' "'Yeah, you could say that. "'You bump into any interesting old friends?' "'Well, there was one round every corner, it seemed to me.' "'Yes? Yes.' Fred Carno, Sid Chaplin, Billy Ritchie, Mike Asher. It was like a fun factory reunion. And, she said, nudging me with her elbow. And? What do you mean, and? Oh, Arthur, don't tease me. You know what I want to know. Did you see? She glanced around to make sure we were not being overheard and then whispered. Her. Who? I said. Arthur Dando, I will swing for you. I swear I will. Why, Tilly, of course. Did you see Tilly? Did you? Oh, very quickly. I saw her for a cup of tea, but I had to be so careful. She didn't want Alf to know she was there, or Charlie, but I did so want to see the baby. Ah, I said, shaking my head quickly to rid myself of the mental image of the miniature chaplain. So? Yes, I saw her, I said. And? And we talked, and that was that, and now it's finally over and done with. Amy frowned, puzzled. What do you mean, over and done with? Well, you know, she left without saying anything, and she had Charlie's child, didn't she? So all I really wanted to say was goodbye and, and good luck with all that. Arthur Dando. What? She's made her bed, hasn't she? You mean to tell me... Oh, you chump! What's the matter with you? Surely you didn't leave without... Oh! Amy was exasperated with me for some reason. Without what? Amy turned and looked me in the eye. I'm not supposed to... But I, I can't just sit here and let you just... Let me just what? Whatever are you so cross about, Amy? Oh, it was all for you, don't you see, you cloth-headed buffoon? Can't you work it out? All for me? Amy sat there, her lips pressed together defiantly. She wasn't going to say any more, but she wasn't going to leave until I put it together for myself. So I thought about what she could possibly mean. At that moment, a picture popped into my head. Tilly on the path outside the hoo-hoo house. "'Don't you want to know his name?' she'd said. "'No,' I'd shouted, hadn't I? "'Angry, turning to walk away, out of her life. "'Arthur,' she'd said softly. "'Arthur.' 
not speaking to me, not calling me back, telling me the name of the child, her child. But why would she call the boy Arthur, of all things, if he was Charlie's? That didn't make a lot of sense, did it? She'd only have called him Arthur if... The blood was rushing in my ears. "'Got it now?' Amy tutted, hands on hips. The Pacific Express pulled out of Seattle Station and began to pick up speed. I leapt to my feet, barrelled out through that dark baggage compartment of happy memory, pushed through the back door and vaulted over the observation platform, landing heavily on the sleepers between the tracks. The boxcar pulled away towards California, but I was already running in the other direction, running back to the hoo-hoo house. <laughs> I didn't know if she would come. Did she walk here every day? Was that what she meant? Or was she here every day this week because she knew I was in town, and now that she thought that I was heading south, might she not bother to come? Give it a miss? I had no clue how to find her otherwise, short of haunting Mike's place trying to bump into the battered Asher or Lucia. The clock chimed. Midday came and went, and I slumped, head in hands. I stood up, pushed myself away from the statue of the arched black cat with the illuminating eyes. Suddenly, there on the path, a little way off, I saw her. She was pushing a bassinet, and as I spotted her, she leaned in with a smile to adjust a blanket, or maybe to chuck the little chap's chin. "'Tilly!' I called. She looked up, startled, and looked around. "'Arthur, I thought you'd be on your way by now.' "'I should be.' I jumped off, jumped off the back of the train. "'You!' She frowned a little, and then seemed to realise why I would do such a thing, and she looked down at the floor. "'He's called Arthur.' come and say hello. I walked over to the bassinet and stooped to peek inside. There was a bonny little pink boy lying in there, snoozing away, a white woollen cap on his head tied under his chin with a ribbon, so tiny and yet, somehow, overwhelming. Well, hello there, Arthur, I said. I'm Arthur. Would you like to walk with us? I think I would like that, yes. We set off down the path, me pushing the baby's carriage, Tilly walked beside us, one hand resting on the edge. The wind rustled the tops of the tall trees. "'Why didn't you tell me?' I said at length, till he sighed. I thought about it. Too much, probably. "'I mean, you are sure?' "'Of course I'm sure,' she said indignantly. "'But Charlie must believe differently. I'm not particularly proud of that.' We walked on in silence for a little while, and I let her gather herself to spill all. When I realised I was with child, she said finally, and it was that time in the boxcar with you, obviously, no other explanation was possible, I tried to think what to do for the best. If I stayed with the company and I started to show, and it was known that you were the father of the child, then we would both have been booted out together for moral turpitude or whatever Carno's ridiculous phrase is. I would have stood by you, I said. Of course you would, she said, without sounding entirely convinced. But forever after... I would feel that I had ruined your most cherished dream, and that's no way to live a life. But I thought about coming to you and offering to leave to have the baby alone, but if you'd chosen that, chosen to reject me and stay with Carno, how would you have been able to live with yourself? I wouldn't have done that, I said, but I was wondering. Wouldn't you? I couldn't make you choose between comedy and me. I was afraid of what choice you would make, and whichever choice you'd made would have been the ruin of you. I know you. I couldn't have done that to you. So what did you do? Tilly walked along for another moment or two. You have to understand what my relationship with Charlie was like, she said then. 
He's very attentive. He makes a girl feel adored. There's no other word. And it is very attractive. Huh, I said. He puts the girl on a pedestal and he woos her. What appeals to him is an ideal of innocence, purity, youth, freshness, a sort of first flowering, I think. You remember I said I felt like the Queen of the May. So you see, our relationship was never allowed to sink below an elevated level, shall we say. I see, I said. I began to feel my days were numbered in any case, especially when that little Annie Forrester arrived. Well, you were right about that, I said. He's hardly left her side these past few months, or let her open a door, or carry anything. Hmm. But you see, he was still wanting to spend all his time with me, because we were friends, and good companions, and because... Because what? She paused, but then decided the conversation might as well go all the way. Because of you, I think, I began to feel that he thought of me mainly as a kind of trophy to be brandished in your face. I nodded. Tilly took a deep breath and then plunged right in. So I decided to seduce him. It was kind of awful in some ways because he still wanted to idolise me, but in the end nature took over and it was all a little embarrassing. It was all I could do to make sure he'd done enough to convince him later that he was responsible for my condition. Really? They'd never have sacked him, not him. He's far too important now. Everywhere we went, remember, it was his name on the posters, not Carno's, not any more. He's bigger than Carno. He's the one all the theatre managers want to see. And we were going back to places we'd been before, and he's the one the audiences remember and come to see again and again. Yes, yeah, all right, I said. She was laying it on a bit thick, I thought. So he'd have been safe, that's the point. He'd have been all right, and he'd have been able to protect me and the baby when he came along. And at least that would have been something. We walked along in silence for a little while. I saw clearly enough that she'd tried to protect me, to take the burden entirely on her own shoulders. I thought of Tilly wanting to be the next Mary Lloyd. It must have crossed her mind that getting Charlie to stand by her was the only way to hang on to her own ambitions. "'Did you think he would marry you when you told him?' I said finally. "'I suppose I thought it was possible,' she said. "'Did you love him then?' "'I think I did, a little, but those feelings died a death.' They did? Oh, yes. When he handed me a fistful of dollars and told me to leave at once without speaking to anyone. He didn't think he was safe, I said. Stan told me. He was in a blind funk. Yes. It was a lot to ask. I see that now. At the time, it seemed to make a kind of sense to me. When a baby's on the way, you feel like you have to make plans, even if they're not as well thought out as they might be. Here's a plan, I said. I will leave Carno, leave right now, and take care of you and the baby. You will not. I don't want that. It would be the same thing, the very same thing that I feared. Don't you see that? You would feel good about your choice for a while, virtuous even, but soon enough you would start to think, start to regret, start to wonder if you could ever have been a number one, and whose fault would it be then for holding you back? My fault, mine and the child's. I would never blame you. You would, my dear, you would. You wouldn't mean to, but sooner or later you would. And then what would become of us all? We could go back to England. And what would we use for money? I can still remember how you talked about the time you were out on your own. Imagine that, but with a family too. We walked on through the trees, the bassinet wheels crunching the gravel. Was she right about me? Perhaps she was. Part of my mind was already calculating how much time I had to catch up with the company in Portland, whether there would be trains. Suddenly, I stopped dead. The little baby carriage rolled on a couple of feet before Tilly grasped the handle.
Listen, I said. Listen. Why don't you come back to Carno? <laughs> Tilly laughed. He's not likely to welcome me back, is he? Not after this week. He wouldn't need to know. I feel like I really let Alf and Amy down, Tilly said. Nonsense. They love you. You know they do. I could hardly bring a child on tour, could I? Why not? We're a company, just like those burlesque girls of yours. Do you think we wouldn't help out? We're a family. A baby? In the boxcar? Really? Tilly was musing, unconvinced. Besides, it would mean leaving Mike and Lucia in the lurch, and I couldn't possibly go back, not while... She stopped. But not while Chaplin is the number one. That's what she meant to say. Ah, but things could be changing soon, I said. Really? Changing how? You're not going to do anything stupid, are you? No, no. Charlie could be leaving us to go and make motion pictures. Shut up. Why on earth would he do something as daft as that? I know, I know, it's craziness, but he's got a pretty decent offer and he's seriously considering it. And then... you? Maybe. Why not? Why not me? Then I could have whoever I asked for. Don't tell him you saw me. Who? Charlie, of course. So, will you? I pressed. Will I what? Come back to Carno's when Charlie's gone and I am the number one. If that happens. When? When it happens. When? All right. When that happens, you come and find me and ask me again. Now that is what I call a plan, I said. I took her hands and clasped them in mine. Then I took her properly in my arms and kissed her. And then I set off running to the railway station. All I had to do now was get rid of Charlie Chaplin. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.